Would you please remain standing as you're able? These words are from Paul, fourth chapter of Ephesians, beginning of verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that is, as it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. I heard Dr. Phil say it, so it must be so. He said, as long as there are relationships, there will be struggling relationships. And I suspect that statistics back him up. We learned less than a decade ago of surveying people who had uh, fired employees that 85% of employees who are fired nationwide are fired for what are known as non-technical reasons. Basically, they couldn't get along with other people. They couldn't fit in to a particular system. Some years before that, in a survey of Americans, they found that Americans who were troubled named loneliness as their number one problem. Now, now sometimes loneliness just happens to us, and it's through no fault of our own. But sometimes, like in the story that uh, Roger told the children, it is due to our inability to uh, nurture and uh, keep uh, relationships vital. As long as there are relationships, there will be struggling relationships And the bad news this morning is that Christians are no exceptions. Christians struggle with relationships just as much as the general population. The difference is this, that Christians claim to serve and follow a person who was the master of relationships, the person who taught us the great commandment. You'll remember the great commandment had two parts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Both parts, when you look at the cross and the sanctuary on a Sunday morning, you see the vertical beam reminding us that we need to be attentive to our relationship with God. But we see the horizontal bar, which reminds us that our relationship with God uh, must also take into account relationships with other people. So what do we do when our relationships with key people, whether at work or at home or in the community, struggle? What do we do? Well... I remember when Dr. Greg Baer, medical doctor, turned relationship doctor, was here in our sanctuary a couple years ago. He said that when you're in a difficult and struggling relationship, he said typically you have three options. One is that you can just leave it. If it's a job, quit it. If it's another relationship, walk out on it. But leave it's an option. He said that another option you have is you can stay in it and hate it. Stay in it and just endure it. And then he said, there is a third option of stay in it and learn to love it. And then he said, and you'll note I didn't give you a fourth option, change the other person. Because it simply is not within our power. So what do we do? As Christians who follow the one who master relationships, we are called to stay in even the most struggling and difficult relationships to the best of our ability. I'm grateful that Jesus stayed in relationship with me even though I strayed far from him. Well, how do we do this? We've been talking for the last six weeks about the importance of applying the resurrected power of Christ 
to all of our life. And we set up basically two steps that we needed to keep in mind. The first step was that we remember that Paul said that I've been crucified with Christ. And so we remember that the first step is that in our life, sometimes things have to be surrendered or given up or they have to die. And then the second step, Paul said, and yet nevertheless, it is not I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And we use the analogy that some things need to be born or some things need to be welcomed into our life. It is no different with relationships. When our relationships are struggling, there are some things that are going to need to be surrendered and given up. And then there are going to need to be some things who are welcomed. Let me make a few suggestions uh, this morning. The verse is this. What needs to die in a struggling relationship? Now, this is not the word Paul used, but I think Paul would approve the concept. Perhaps the very first thing that needs to die in a struggling relationship is control. In con- control is the, is the source of much misery in human relationships. Somebody trying to maneuver another person or somebody trying to guarantee or uh, set up or arrange a particular outcome. And that usually spells trouble in the relationships. And we need to remember that control itself is often just an illusion that we carry. We are perhaps less in control than we might realize anyway. I remember the example that uh, Jerry Sitzer once used, uh, who had suffered tragedy in his life. He said this, he said, you can go to the health club every day and you can uh, eat right. As, as well as exercise right, and you can read and, and care for the right things. And then he said, you can be driving on the road and somebody can cross into your lane. And in a moment, it's all over. It's beyond your control. Control is the form that much as, uh, that, uh, our relationships take, and it causes much suffering. Usually, control can be also known as manipulation. There's a variety of ways to manipulate people. I mean, I know, I've, I've tried them all. And, uh, you know, there are some, like, positive sorts of ways, like people-pleasing. You know, if I can do what I think you'd like, then I can, uh, I can get the response from you that I'm hoping for. So sometimes we play too much uh, to another person and their, their desires, even when it goes against the grain of who we are and our, our real character. That's one form of manipulation. Another form of manipulation is simply attack. I will assault you verbally. Uh, and, and harangue you until I get from you the response that I want. Another form of uh, uh, manipulation and control is withdrawal. Or, or my personal favorite, you can just pout. You, know, you, can, you can be the victim and play the game. Well, guess what's wrong with me now? Guess what I'm unhappy about now? And you're going to have to guess and do something about it. And if you guess and do something about it, then I'll smile again and, and we'll be happy. The, these are all forms. Of manipulation. Paul picked out one right away when he said, put away falsehood. Lying is a form of manipulation. To share with someone something other than the truth so that they will have a particular opinion of you or of the situation. Those are all forms of manipulation and they're not healthy. And part of the problem with them is sometimes they work or they seem to work. And then you pout enough for someone to do it your way and then you wonder. Did they do it my way because they wanted or because I pouted? Do they love me for who I am or have I just browbeaten them into a certain type of behavior? If you get love through manipulation, what you find out eventually is it really wasn't love at all. So one of the first things that's got to go is any form of manipulation or control. Second thing I would think that has to go is fear. You must try as best you can to banish fear from your relationships. Think how many times Jesus told his disciples, don't be afraid. 
I'm quite sure Jesus knew that fear can paralyze us in, in our lives and kind of keeps us just running in place and trying to run in sand. But I also think Jesus knew that any fear-based relationship was a relationship that wasn't going to last, wouldn't grow, wouldn't be productive. I mean, there are appropriate stages to have fear in your relationship. If you have a two-year-old who continues to insist on playing in the middle of the street, you perhaps will have to inject some fear into them. But by the time they're 400 miles away at college, that's a less effective approach. Fear is sort of short-term gain in the relationship, but long-term pain. Imagine if when you graduated from college, you took a job simply because you were afraid you wouldn't find one. You knew it didn't fit you. You didn't like like it. It didn't go with your passion. It didn't go with your gifts. But you took it because you were afraid you wouldn't get one otherwise. What are your long-term prospects in that career not very good i would think or let's say you accepted a marriage proposal simply because no one had asked to date so far no one asked you and you're afraid no one else might and so you said yes what are the long-term prospects for that marriage and that relationship fear is rarely a good reason to do anything when i act in fear i am never my best self So acting out of fear that I might not be in relationship with you if I don't do things your way or don't manipulate you in some way is not going to be very helpful anyway. Let us try to surrender control and fear. And then finally, let's try to surrender revenge as well. Paul has obviously got an eye to this when he starts talking about forgiveness. Revenge is the desire to make someone pay before you go on with the relationship. Make sure the score sort of gets even, that the uh, the table... It gets set before you go forward. And one of the things about revenge is it usually operates like a boomerang. We send it toward the direction of a person, but it typically has the effect of coming back and doing more damage to our own life. Frederick Buechner has this wonderful analogy. He says this, he said that, that anger is like a wonderful feast. I don't know if you've ever been angry with someone, just sort of righteous indignation. They were wrong, you were right, and you begin to plot how delicious it will be for them to realize that they're wrong. And how wonderful it's going to be when they get what's coming to them. And you start to feed off it and feed off it and feed off it. And you energize and you start to move forward from that. It's like, said Beekner, a wonderful feast. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. He says at the end of the day, the carcass that's on the table from the feast is your own. Your own anger has eaten you up from the inside out. You simply can't do anything about another person, but you can do something about yourself. I'm just marveled at the fact that Paul doesn't say anything about other people. He just talks about us. You forgive whether or not they do. You're kind-hearted whether or not they are. You're compassionate regardless of how they act. He puts it in our ballpark. And so one of the things we can do, whether or not they respond appropriately, is just give up revenge. It's a boomerang that comes back, as I mentioned, to hit us. It is rarely going to get the results that you need. And theologically, it's just bad stewardship. It's a bad use of your time and energy to sit around and plot revenge against someone. First of all, a lot of times they don't even know that you're that upset with them. They go merrily along with your life sometimes even when they do know you're upset with them. It doesn't affect them. But it begins to eat you alive. It's just not a good use of your time and energy that ought to be spent following Christ, spending it trying to get even with another person. You'll remember years ago, the movie came out on the Titanic, and it was, at the time, you know, the best-selling movie of all time, and we all jumped into the Titanic craze. 
remember one Sunday here, I preached a sermon on the Titanic. And, but a few weeks later, I noticed there was a bumper sticker on the back of a car that I will not soon forget. It said this, the Titanic, it sunk, get over it. Well, you know, it has been a few years. At some point, we've got to move past. We've got to move past. The question that Kevin asked his neighbor, the old man, was this. What have you got to lose by reaching out to your son? And the question I would ask is a corollary of that to you, which is what have you got to gain by staying angry with this person? What have you got to gain? What benefits are you enjoying currently by feeding on this anger and this need to get revenge on another person? Probably not many. Martin Luther, the great reformer, talks about Adam and Eve and what it must have been like for them to not forgive one another and to go into revenge. He said, can you imagine, after this debacle in the garden, they each lived another 500 years or so. You know, for 500 years, can you imagine, well, you ate the apple, well, you gave it to me, yeah, but you ate it. Round and round and round. What, what's the benefit? Control and fear and revenge. They need to be surrendered. I would submit that you welcome in their place their opposites, or at least as I see their opposites. The opposite for me of control is trust. Trust. Trust, first of all, in yourself. Trust that you are a lovable person, that you are worth loving. You don't have to manipulate an employer or a person or a friend because you intrinsically are worth loving. Trust that about yourself. They may not love you in that way, but that's not a reflection on you. Trust, first of all, in your own worth and value. And then finally, trust the person to respond in ways that are right and appropriate. They may not, but give them the chance. Don't manipulate it. Spent all day yesterday watching tennis, and one of the interesting things about tennis and entertaining things is that when the ball's on your side of the court, you hit it. And you don't jump over the net and hit it back to yourself. The other person, when the ball's in their court, they have to make a response, and the entertaining part of the game is what kind of response will they make? Will it be the right response, the response you're hoping for, the wrong response? You don't know. But you let them hit it when it's in their court. Trusting another person means when the ball's in their court, they do with it what they will. You cannot reach over and hit it for them. Trust. Let's have welcome that into our life. Let's welcome the opposite of fear, which biblically you already know the opposite of fear is love. Perfect love casts out fear. Now, love is not in the Bible, as you know, an emotion. It's not a feeling. You know, feelings are wonderful things as long as there are servants. They make very terrible masters. When we live our lives by our feelings, we don't generally live them in the right ways and right directions. But love, biblically, is an action that you take. It's, it's not only a stance, it is a, an action based on a stance toward a person, willing their best and doing what you can to bring out the best and do the best for another person. I just thought for a moment, let's just walk through five easy ways to demonstrate love for another person, put the feeling into an action, even if you don't yet have the feeling. How do you demonstrate love? Well, you can say it. You can tell a person how you feel. So for some of us, that's difficult in our relationships. But to do that, to, to say how you feel, to write how you feel. I mean, I hope it's not too late. It's Mother's Day if you haven't done that yet. Write, write how you feel, a card or, or whatnot. Third thing is when you're in their presence physically, an appropriate touch often, hug or, or a pat or something that indicates that you're with them and you want the best for them. Another is a kind act. Just to do something kind for another person is a way to enact love in their life. And finally, you may not see 
I mean, may not be able rather to say or do anything, but just to be with the person. Just to be in their presence is a way that you let them know about love. And a lot of people are doing that on this weekend. So let's give up. Let's give up fear. Let's welcome into our life love. And then finally, if we're going to give up revenge, then we must certainly welcome, as Paul commands us to do, forgiveness. It's interesting that in, in the Greek, the word uh, to forgive is a word picture. So people could remember it. It's a, a, a knot being untied. The biblical writers obviously knew that when we carry around unforgiveness and a need for revenge, it's like a knot in us. And it's just all, it's tight. We're knotted up. We're not free to move. We can't flow through our life because of this knot. And so to forgive is to untie that knot. And it's not something we do for the other person. We do it for ourselves. Paul's not worried right now about the other person. Paul's worried about you. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is something you do. The person that you need to forgive may not even be alive anymore. But you still do it. You untie the knot. You're no longer going to plot their revenge and their demise. You're not going to ask that the table be set right or that the, the scales be even before you go forward in the relationship. You let it get untied. You've seen those commercials for the office supply. When they need something, they have the easy button and they reach for it. The easy button in relationships that are struggling is forgiveness. Now, it's not easy to find in all that mess and clutter of our life. And it's even sometimes harder to push. But once you push it, and you begin to forgive, that's what starts to untangle a lot of the difficult aspects of relationship in our life. And to do otherwise, why were you? Why would you? What are you gaining from staying separated or angry or hostile toward another person? I'm reminded of a story about two shopkeepers that lived in a small town, and they were rivals. They sold the same thing. They were across the street from each other. Even their children grew up to be rivals And one day, though, an angel came and visited the shopkeeper on one side of the street. And they said, I've good news. I've come to bless you. And whatever you ask me me for, I will give to you. Whatever you ask me for, I will give to you. But there's one thing you need to know. That whatever I give to you, I will give twice as much to your shopkeeper across the street. So he thought about it for a moment. And he says, okay. He says to the angel, I'd like you to put out one of my eyes. Isn't that us? Plotting our revenge and injuring ourselves all the while. You could leave. You can stay in it and hate it. Or you can, by beginning to forgive, learn to love it.